This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. The Collected Works of Marie-Louise von Franz is the forthcoming 28-volume magnum opus of one of the leading minds in analytical psychology. The first volume, Archetypal Symbols and Fairy Tales, The Profane and Magical Worlds, was released on January 4, 2021, Dr. von Franz's 106th birthday, and is to be followed by 27 more volumes over the next 10 years. Joining us today for Episode 78 are the general editors of this series, Jungian psychiatrists Drs. Stephen Buser and Leonard Cruz in Asheville, North Carolina. Dr. Buser received his MD from the Duke University School of Medicine and is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He served for 12 years in the United States Air Force, where he was the sole military psychiatrist in Central and South America, was chief of a critical incidents stress debriefing team, led hostage negotiations, and specialized in war trauma evaluations and treatment. He worked in private psychiatric practice for many years before entering the clinical training program at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Along with Dr. Cruz in 2013, he acquired Chiron Publications, where he currently serves as chief publisher. Since 2018, he has been on the clinical faculty at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, teaching medical students addiction medicine and psychiatry. Dr. Cruz holds an MD from the University of Miami School of Medicine and a graduate degree in business from Western Carolina University. After 33 years of practicing general psychiatry and psychotherapy, he shifted his clinical focus to treating substance use disorders and is currently the chief medical officer of a 72-bed state-supported substance abuse hospital. He explores how postmodern man's search for transcendent experiences can easily descend into addiction, and how utilizing myth, rites, and rituals can help support patients seeking sobriety. He currently serves as editor-in-chief and CEO of Chiron Publications. In 2008, Drs. Buser and Cruz co-founded the Asheville Jung Center, a pioneer in bringing high-quality online Jungian educational programs to a worldwide audience. They are the co-authors of DSM-5 Insanely Simplified, Unlocking the Spectrums Within DSM-5 and ICD-10, and co-editors of A Clear and Present Danger, Narcissism in the Era of President Trump, Rocket Man, Nuclear Madness and the Mind of Donald Trump, and, along with Dr. Murray Stein, are the contributors to the wildly popular Map of the Soul book series, which you can learn more about on Speaking of Jung's BTS page. After several years of negotiations and preparations, Chiron Publications embarked on a 10-year-long project of publishing a newly translated collected works of Marie-Louise von Franz, and it is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on January 6th, 2021, through the magic of Zoom. 
Doctors Buser and Cruz, I really appreciate you taking the time today to join us to discuss this very exciting and highly anticipated project of yours. Well, thank you so much for having us, Laura. It has been a delight to have stayed connected with you over the years and the amazing work you're doing in the Jungian world and the podcast and the BTS piece. You know, we've been connecting you know, from afar with uh, the whole you know, BTS energy around Jung. And now we have this really exciting you know, new chapter you know, for Chiron Publications, moving into the collective works of Marie-Louise von Franz. It's daunting. It's such a, a large project ahead of us, yet we are very excited to be you know, doing so. And I echo the, the, the welcome. Thank you very much, Laura, for the opportunity to talk about this. And, um, and for your very kind words about, we agree it's a substantial project and hopefully we'll have a, an impact on the Jungian community. So we're just delighted to be able to bring this forth. Well, thank you both for all the work you've put into this. And I thought we would begin today with laying the groundwork first, because we've got some new listeners and they might not be familiar with Marie-Louise von Franz. So Let's lay the groundwork of who she was. Yeah, Marie-Louise von Franz was born 106 years ago, as you mentioned, and was really an amazing figure within the Jungian psychological world. Many people believe that there were two primary figures early on. The main figure, of course, was Carl Jung himself, um, most believe that von Franz was number two in the sense of she had a nearly equally brilliant mind, amazing memory, gift of language, and from a very early age, really connected with Jung and for over 60 years continued you know, research and lecturing and moving the, the ball forward with, uh, with Jungian psychology. After Carl Jung's death, you know, she became the, the lead person in the Zurich Institute and really was the heir apparent of sorts and kind of moved the ball forward. So when people think of the early years of Jungian psychology, you know, besides Carl Jung, von Franz is really the, the next up with that. People have called her the queen of Jungian psychology, as opposed to Carl Jung would obviously be the king. And she was really the successor, you know, from Jung in bringing this forward. The one thing that I found really fascinating, you know, with von Franz is how impacted and grounded in the archetypal chaos of the early part of the century with that. The reason I say that, <clears throat> she was born in 1915, January 1915, and of course, World War I was 1914 to 1918. So she was born just months after World War I. Beyond that, her father was a, one of the chief of staffs for the Austro-Hungarian army, which obviously was part of the Axis powers with Germany. So her father was at the very highest ranks of the, the military in World War I. He served on the Zanzo Front, which was this bloody campaign in Italy. And of course, Germany and Austria lost World War I. So at that point, von Franz, as an infant, you know, was nearly a refugee, you know, fleeing Austria, trying to get to, to Switzerland. And 
had to wait on the border of Switzerland for months, you know, trying to get a visa until she was finally able to get across. Obviously, she was an infant, so it was her father and mother bringing her across. So that's one. World War I was huge. She was in her 20s in World War II in the center of Europe. So that's a second archetypal event. The other thing I found intriguing was the great pandemic of 1918. A hundred years ago, we all have heard probably about the Spanish flu you know, now with this being the second great pandemic you know, since then. And her father contracted the Spanish flu and was invalid you know, for months you know, with that. So her own family was impacted dramatically from the last great you know, pandemic. Fast forward a few years and the Great Depression you know, hit and her father was wiped out of his you know, family wealth. And so they became um, not quite penniless, but, but had very little money at that point. So much so that <clears throat> she had to self-fund her own you know, college you know, education with that. So you look at these global events and von Franz was right in the middle you know, of many of them. And then you add into that a, another piece of data I found. She had two surgeries before the age of four. One was uh, appendectomy. And nowadays we say, well, so what? Surgery is not a big deal. But this was pre-antibiotic. So if you had a surgery in the era before antibiotics came out, you know, that was highly dangerous. And she was you know, a toddler you know, getting significant surgeries. So part of her greatness, you know, I wonder if it was due to this profound um, archetypal cauldron that, that she was caught up with. And, and that level of early suffering could, could really you know, broaden somebody's you know, soulful approach. So when you look at her writings and her teachings, she's really one of the, the Jungians that goes you know, very deep into the, uh, the unconscious. If I could add, Laura, something else that I think just is so intriguing about um, von Franz is you know, she's, she was a student of linguistics, of philology um, in her undergraduate years. And... Um, it was interesting, the other day I came upon a forward that she wrote to a book fairly late in her career and just a little before Jung died um, called Aurora Consurgence. And in there, she, she discusses how um, Professor Jung essentially tapped her with the request to um, expound on this treatise, which was a treatise by Thomas Aquinas written in uh, medieval Latin. And it, it's, one of the things I found most astounding in just reading uh, about her life was her singular focus. You know, it's rarely the case that a person can be so devoted um, in, a, in such a, um, a singular fashion to the same pursuits throughout the decades of, of their young adult years and on into their, their later years. But um, she, you know, some would say that she often just did a, a great deal of her work at the behest of, of Carl Jung, but but the reality is not only did she bring an originality to that, but perhaps one of the more striking things is rarely do you find people who can be so um, devoted over so many years and, um, and with the humility that she had as well. So it's just striking to me that she had such a grasp of, of ancient languages and all the literature that, that she had to pour through to produce her pretty massive um, volumes of, of writings. And at such an early age, you know, she was a high school student when she met Carl Jung. And right after meeting him, she tells her sister that this was the most decisive encounter of my life, you know, with that. 
at age 18 as a high school student. Now she graduated high school a couple months later, but the fact that at that very early age, she meets young, you know, gets enamored you know, by both him and his psychological work and what high school students go to that level. She starts analysis at age 19, again, very rare. Most of us are much later in our lives before we have the wisdom to see that we need psychoanalysis. And as Len was saying, you know, the way that she paid for her analysis was by translating the Aurora Consurgence. So they had to barter because after the Great Depression, you know, she lost you know, her family money. She couldn't afford analysis with Jung. So she agrees to translate this alchemical ancient text at age 19 in order to, to pay you know, through the barter you know, her own analysis with that. At age 21, she gets invited to Ernos, which is a very prestigious you know, yearly conference that, that Jung was, was leading. At age 29, she enters the psychology club, which was also quite an honor to get invited you know, to be a member of that. So you see her brilliance and love of depth psychology from an extremely early age, which gives her this, this amazingly prolonged career, you know, 65 years of, you know, working on, you know, depth Jungian psychology, which, you know, almost nobody, you know, has that, that ability. And she focuses nearly her entire life, you know, on, on that work. And I heard Peter Amon, who was a guest on this podcast last year, I heard him mention in the ISAP talk that you gave, uh, mm. Dr. Buser uh, and Dr. Cruz, you were there too, along with Dr. Stein, uh, it was about a month ago, and that is available on the Asheville Young Center's YouTube channel, I believe. I will provide a link to that in the show notes. But I heard Dr. Amon say something very interesting that Dr. Von Franz did all this work for Jung, helped him, assisted him. And she then she saw analysis. She worked as a Jungian analyst, but she was also a lecturer and a teacher. And she trained analysts at the Jung Institute. But she also contributed original material. It wasn't just all regurgitating Jung. She did her own research and contributed a lot of original material, which brings me to the books. And the main question that I keep getting asked about this collected works um, is, what what will it contain? The first volume was just released. It's titled Archetypal Symbols and Fairy Tales, Profane and Magical Worlds. But we have a lot to discuss about what else is included. And I was making the episode page for for this uh, for this interview. And I came up with actually 28 books of hers that are currently available on Amazon. Actually, one of them is in German, but the rest are in English. But there is more. So let's for everybody who's just patiently waiting <laughs> for you to tell us what is coming would you outline the collected works? It's going to consist of 28 volumes. We we think. We don't really know okay. because it's a 10-year project. The reason I say that is volume two, for example, would have been, I think, 1,200 pages if we 
publish it in the, the format that it came to us from the translators. And, you know, we can't produce a 1200 page book. It, it probably wouldn't even hold together. So suddenly 27 volumes became 28 volumes because we had to split you know, a book in, in two. You know, some of the, the books we might end up you know, joining together. There may be one that's only 180 pages and we say, you know what, let's bring that together. So when we say 28 volumes, we need to keep in mind that it's it's really a work in progress. Yeah, and that's the best guess for now, but we could certainly go up or down, but it'll, it'll be pretty close to that. One part of your question is where's the material coming from? It, it's definitely not just grabbing the books that have been available you know, over the, the years and okay. pulling together in collective volumes. There's a lot of material, probably a quarter to a third of it, that hasn't been published in English you know, so far. And the first five volumes are a good example of this. The first five, five volumes are a redone piece of her work. When she was in her, her mid-20s, she spent nine years working on fairy tales, her, her very kind of first you know, diving into that, and wrote a what's going to be five volume you know, series on fairy tales, just diving very, very deeply you know, into them. Um, but the person that was in charge of the work was actually paying her to, to do the, the work, you know, had one bite, um, took credit for her work and put her own name you know, on the books. And over the years, it was really you know, determined that von Franz had written these and, and von Byte did very little. So these first five volumes you know, have never been released you know, with von Franz as the rightful author in English. So this is new material. And so you really get a, a window into the early von Franz and how she developed her fairy tale you know, theories kind of over the years you know, with that. I'm going to jump in here because I'd like to, to have you elaborate on that. So when von Franz was around the age of 20, she began writing symbolism of fairy tales. And she wrote for about eight years. And then a German scholar actually paid her. Did she write those for this scholar or did she just write them? And then the scholar came along and said, hey, I'll, I'll pay you for those and I will publish them myself. Now, she, she wrote them as, as a pay job, in essence. She was being paid for okay. eight, nine years to, to help you know, Von Byte you know, write this material. Um, but then... But Steve, wasn't it the case that it was anticipated that she would be credited for her work? Right, right. exactly, exactly. And there was this controversy when the, the works came out in 1952. Yeah, she was barely mentioned in an acknowledgement of, yeah, thanks for some of the work you did, um, even though she wrote you know, 90 to 95% of the material in there. Um, she was contemplating a lawsuit yeah, and was about to, to sue. And actually, Carl Jung himself talked her out of it, thought it'd be unhelpful for the Jungian community to get embroiled in, in the lawsuit. Um, but it was controversial back in the 50s and laid low for the next 50, 60 years until the foundation that controls the, the, the works of von Franz said, you know what, we need to, to write this wrong and, and bring out this material, um, not just in German, but also in English now and correct the, the authorship. You know, of it. So that, that did not happen in her lifetime then. Those three volumes were published 
uh, from mm-hmm. 1952 to 1957 in German. Uh, I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce it, but it translates into Symbolism of Fairy Tales. Yep. And then in 2011, the Foundation for Jungian Psychology acquired the copyright and restored Dr. von Franz as the rightful author. And right. in 2015, yep. it was released in German. Okay, so then you're saying that then those three volumes are the first five volumes of this new collected works? Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, except uh, volume four and five aren't translated yet. Okay. So they'll be numbered volumes one through five, but we're going to publish one through three, and then we jump to, I think, six and seven. Um, so we'll be jumping around depending where the translations are. The other exciting thing about this is these are new translations, yeah, in essence. So even the books that have already been released in English, which is a good number of them, but by no means all of them, mm-hmm. um, those books are being retranscribed, retranslated from the original German You know, with that. With considerable footnoting as well. With a lot so, of scholarship and footnoting and yeah, indexing, right? So another it, exciting aspect is, um, I think, in Volume Six, is going to be the visions of Nicholas von Flew, who, and that's a um, that's I think will be the first time it appears in English. So that's mm-hmm. a highly anticipated thing. And and for those who don't know, that was a saint um, from the 1400s um, in Switzerland, who I think it was maybe in his fifth decade of life, um, had a series of visions in which um, I think it essentially conveyed to him that he had allowed his worldly pursuits to overtake his his spiritual life. And so from that point onward, I think he um, they, he left his, his family and devoted himself entirely to, to the contemplative life. And, and again, that, that volume um, is available in German, but has never been translated to English. And that will be volume six. That will be volume six, but as Steve was mentioning, it won't appear after the fifth volume. It'll probably appear after the third volume while we await translation of later this year. Yeah, if everything goes right, you know, we'll be doing volume two and three in the next four to to six months. And then by the second half of the year, you know, we'll be working on volumes, you know, six and seven. Yeah, if we're able to continue the pace that we we anticipate. And the first three volumes are already named. As I mentioned, the first volume is Archetypal Symbols and Fairy Tales, The Profane and Magical Worlds. Volume two will be titled Archetypal Symbols and Fairy Tales, The Hero's Journey. And volume three, Archetypal Symbols and Fairy Tales, The Maiden's Quest. So the the second and third volumes are The Hero's Journey and The Maiden's Quest. And at first glance, many think, oh, well, we know about that, you know, Joseph Campbell and Robert Johnson. Mm-hmm. But then you think about it, well, wait a minute, Fon Franz, you know, wrote these in her 20s. So, you know, this work, you know, predates the majority of that. So this is some of the original Jungian conceptions of the hero's journey and the maiden's quest, which later on, you know, was picked up by, by other Jungians over the, yeah. the years. So we're really getting to the roots and the history and how this material came out. And fairy tales is really one of the main areas von Franz was known for. There were quite a few areas, as you mentioned, 
earlier. She did a lot of original contributions. Fairy tales, probably the biggest. You know, alchemy, you know, along with Carl Jung, was a big one. But things like time, numbers, synchronicity, you know, death, life after death. These were all areas that she spent you know, a lot of you know, time and expertise on. And fairy tales, you know, the, the biggest. So as we begin these first five volumes and we dive into the, the fairy tales that she has been researching, again, you get that early snapshot of von Franz and, and how she was developing her theories and, and, and seeing the depth that she goes into you know, in a single volume, volume one, she mentions 863 fairy tales. Not that she analyzes all of them, but she analyzes quite a few. The depth and brilliance of her mind is just astounding as you see her kind of go through these fairy tales. You know, in reading this first volume, even when we received it as, as the manuscript, I have to say it's, it's, it's really quite a bit of effort to read through hundreds of fairy tales if you just think of it as just a, a succession of different stories. But, but one thing that comes from the immersing yourself in the text that although I know this, and I've certainly um, been instructed about this, that the, the fact that you read 800, was it Steve, um, fairy tales that, um, that have some coherence to them. And, and the coherence that you begin to realize is the, the idea that, that Jung really discovered and uh, proposed to all of us of there being a collective level of the unconscious, it really comes through in a, in a meaningful way when you exert yourself to read through hundreds of fairy tales and realize that these motifs and these themes um, recur over and over again across different epochs in time and across different cultures. I mean, we can, we can hear that as a theoretical construct but there, there, I really did find it um, powerful to, to go through the effort of, of reading these endless numbers of stories. And the idea that I never had the illusion that I would remember all these tales in a way that I could recount the ones that we all grew up with or familiar, like, like Grimm's fairy tales. But to know that those, those themes are so um, consistent that even if in the telling of a story, you might leave out a detail here or a little element there, you begin to realize that the power that those narratives have for all of us and that what Jung discovered was, was really quite a remarkable thing that had been staring us in the face forever. It just took somebody to be able to put that to words and identify it. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask both of you is why are fairy tales important? Well, I'll take a stab at that. And it's a great question because we see Von Franz spending decades and decades of her life yeah. you know, diving into these fairy tales and, and not just reading a book of, of Grimm's tales, but going through thousands and thousands of fairy tales. What Carl Jung and Von Franz and, of course, many other Jungians have discovered over the, the years is that fairy tales, much like dreams, hold the collective wisdom and really the collective unconscious, you know, within them. You know, they developed gradually over the eons and really tapped into primal archetypes, you know, primal fears, you know, the arcane. And by studying them, you know, we get a sense of the, the universal, you know, patterns within life, you know, with that. And you see this with von Franz 
diving into it. I mean, she she also has this gift to make the extraordinarily complex, you know, really yeah, fathomable with that. You know, Murray Stein on that, that one lecture we had you know, just a few weeks ago gave this marvelous you know, statement of von Franz that the very first time he heard her speaking at the Young Institute in Zurich, yeah, he was blown away by her. He felt as if God, yeah, himself or herself was speaking and this wisdom was just flowing from von Franz, you know, without any notes, you know, and her ability just to weave it all together. And you see that developing and coming together, you know, in these first volumes of her, her fairy tales. In volume one, she not just goes through all these endless fairy tales, but does so and organizes them in ways that she brings out these themes. The first third of the book is talking about the, the background elements of a fairy tale, how a fairy tale can resemble a, a mandala in its orientation and its geography, you know, how the sky, the moon, the background, the forest, the mountains, each hold these pretty profound archetypal symbolisms. Then in the second part, she divides you know, each of the characters, the main characters, besides the hero or heroine, into this quaternity of others. That yeah, she that, that, that was very interesting. I heard you mention that and, and outline it and spend a considerable amount of time on it. During the ISAP talk, the mm. four archetypal others. It, exactly. That most of us, when I was reading a fairy tale, fairy tale before this, I wasn't thinking along those lines. I was just thinking about the bear or the king or the, the wizard in it. But once you have her patterns down of you have the hero and the heroine, and that person is engaging others within the tale. And then she spends a lot of time on the discernment of magic, because all fairy tales have magic in them, speaking animals, you know, enchanted rings, um, swords, timelessness. And wherever the magical pieces are, yeah, in volume one, she describes that as where the archetypes are. So if there's a magical figure, a magical element, that becomes archetypal. That's where the collective unconscious archetypes are poking through the mundane world we live in and breaking into this enchanted kingdom of the fairy tale. And then she goes even further and says, whenever the hero is engaging an other person, you know, there's four possibilities of the other person that she's engaging with. And those four options are mother, father, son, daughter. But she goes into a whole lot more detail. The father is this daimonic, you know, powerful father, the king. The mother could be the great mother or the evil kind of wicked stepmother. The, the son holds the, the shadow you know, element, the daimonic shadow you know, emissary. And then the, the daughter carries this magical anima kind of maiden you know, piece. And when you read a fairy tale with that background, and that's just from the first volume, you've got five more or four mm -hmm. more to go through, you, know, you start hearing these elements. There's gonna be this hero's quest we'll learn about next volume. There'll be a maiden's journey. There's the background of the enchanted kingdom of the fairy tale. And there's the great mother and father and the emissaries and the shadow and anima that the hero heroine is engaging kind of through it. And it really does take it into a new life. Instead of Hansel and Gretel just being Hansel and Gretel, suddenly the evil stepmother you know, becomes alive and the witch and you start 
putting these elements into their their proper place. Okay, so the demonic father, the great mother, the demonic shadow son, and the magical anima daughter. Would you tell our listeners, would you explain to our listeners what the word demonic means? Right, because when you first read that or, or hear it, especially as a male, you I want to say, wait a minute, you know, the masculine ones are demonic and the the feminine ones are are magical and great. But that's not <laughs> at all what she means. And it sort of interplays, yeah, because there can be daimonic, you know, mother. But daimond isn't demon, demonic. Daimonic refers to sort of a an ancient concept of godlike deities and emissaries that sometimes help the hero heroine and sometimes trip them up and have a trickster energy to them. So a daimon isn't necessarily a bad thing, like a demon typically is seen as. And if we run into a magical male being that has a daimon energy to him, yeah, uh, or a female that's got daimon, it could be either one, but she focuses on the male. You know, we need to pay attention because that's again an archetypal presence, and and that diamond is coming from the unconscious. And if we ignore it, that's the worst thing we can do, because the unconscious ignored leads typically in a fairy tale to uh, catastrophe. You know, with that, and vice versa. If we listen to the diamond, even if we go against it, but we listen to it, respect it, you know, hear its wisdom uh, or its warning, typically the hero will have a positive outcome and yeah find the maiden or kill the dragon or whatever the the quest is you know for the hero heroine i'd also like to suggest that there's two other reasons that come to my mind for why fairy tales and what's what's so important that we would give them our attention and and one of them is i i think it's useful to remember that we're looking at this through our adult eyes but for the most part, our, our first encounters with fairy tales happen when we're very young and very impressionable. And when we still have a sense of the, the magic mm-hmm. and the mystery of life. So I, I think it's interesting to me to, to consider the, the parallel ideas that do fairy tales sort of imbue in us certain um, engrams and, and certain patterns of the way we'll experience our our worlds in the future. And I, what comes to mind in that regard was when my daughters were quite young, I often would tell them bedtime stories in which the, the main themes were a little girl whose grandmother or one of the elders had taught an ancient language, and then a dragon would come into the village and all the all the adults in the in the village would be terrified until the little girl went out into the, the court in the, in the square and then would speak the name of the dragon and bind it. And the whole time I was doing it with great intention to let them know that, you know, there, there's all sorts of dragons and, and ferocious elements in our psyche that, that once you can name them, you may be able to, to bind them. And to this day, even in their young adult years, they remember those stories powerfully. So hmm. it often leads me to wonder, do we, to some extent, tell fairy tales as a way of transmitting the, the main motifs of culture, or, is it, and maybe it's both at the same time, are there already patterns that the fairy tales are just reflecting? So that's one feature I think warrants the study of them. And then the other I think is that, you know, I think it's fair to say that for anybody who reflects on their life, 
it's very easy to come to the realization that in the vastness of the universe, our personal stories can be looked at as sort of puny and small, but on hearing a, a fairy tale in which you feel some of those themes of your own life elevated, I think it, it has certain meaningful redemptive qualities to realize that, that you're also part of a much larger drama of which your story is now reflected in these great stories. And Dr. Buser, you mentioned there are 863 different fairy tales that are mentioned just in this first volume alone, which is 608 pages. And I was wondering about the cultural motifs. These are cross-cultural, right? Mm -hmm. They really are. And it's so impressive to read von Franz diving into the cross-cultural elements long before that was fashionable. Right now, if you did a Eurocentric book on fairy tales, you'd really get some scorn yeah, from the, the public because yeah, we realize now that it's so much bigger than just you know, white European culture. But here, yeah, almost 100 years ago, von Franz knew that in her core and the vast majority of the fairy tales aren't European. I mean, they're Eskimo and they're Indian and they're Hindu, they're, they're all over the map. Um, and it's in interesting that our bias is so woven into it. As I'm reading the fairy tale, if it's a, a Eskimo fairy tale, yeah, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm having a hard time you know, keeping the character straight and this and that. And when it's an English fairy tale, I kind of know it right away with that. Now, maybe that's because I've heard you know, the, the Brother Grimm's tales over the years. Um, but it, it forces you to dive deeper and broader, you know, with that and start trying to resonate with these, these other cultural, you know, fairy tales besides just the Greek and the, the Brother Grimm. Um, and really the vast majority are, are not, you know, European. It's quite striking. So I would actually like to back up because what I neglected to ask you was how this came to be, how you, Doctors Pucer and Cruz, came to acquire maybe these volumes uh, in order to have Chiron be the publisher. It was a very long-term process. And, and I'm going to hear Dr. Cruz's view on it in a moment. You know, what I've noticed is that when it first came to us in 2013, even at that point, you know, Murray Stein, who had you know, been the owner of, of Chiron, you know, prior to us, mm -hmm. you know, gave us a, a forward note of, you know, guys, we've been trying for the last 10 years to try to pull this deal together with the collector works of Von Franz. It's been challenging. There's been a lot of roadblocks. Um, but you guys own Chiron now. Good luck with it. Um, he met us in, in Zurich. We, we flew to Zurich to try to keep this going. But even in 2013, we made some progress. We got to know the foundation you know, a little bit better. Um, but it is so large and so complex and so many copyrights out there and so many publishers and translators yeah, and different members, right? Because it's not a single person making the decision. It's a foundation. Well, I'd like to jump in. Excuse me. I'd like to jump in. And you mentioned the foundation, and I mentioned it briefly earlier. So you were working with the Foundation for Jungian Psychology, which is in Kusnacht, and they are the 
they own the publishing rights for Dr. Ron Franz? Is They're that... the literary heirs. And for a while, it was split. It was half owned by the foundation and half by Emanuel Kennedy, who was yeah, deeply connected to Von Franz. Um, and then a few years back, yeah, it was sold or transferred over. So the foundation is the sole literary heir for the works of Von Franz. And that may have been part of what yeah, helped it move forward because it was you know, less cooks in the kitchen in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, so there, there's a literary heir, which is a foundation. Um, but there were so many complexities uh, and uncertainties. And also everyone in the project, ourselves included, but especially the foundation, really wanted to honor von Franz and the unconscious in this process. So there, there'd be a number of times where I would call Hansuli Eder, who was kind of the lead you know, person for me, contact at the foundation. And I would you know, tell him you know, where we were at, what we'd like to do. I would say, Steve, that's excellent. Let me let me dream about it for a few days mm-hmm. yeah, and I'll get back to you. And he would literally wait, typically a few weeks, yeah, listen to his dreams. And then if his dream said, well, now is not quite time or we need to do something else, he would kind of hold off. Um, and this last time, yeah, I actually had a dream. And so I told Hansuli had her my dream. And then then Hansuli you know, let his dreams build up. And at, at some point, you know, there was a collective consensus that the unconscious wanted this to proceed as well. So it wasn't just a list of checkoff things that needed to occur. We need the rights for this book. We need you know, the translations available. You know, the foundation uh, and Chiron, you know, we were trying to honor the the unconscious process that von Franz was so dedicated. She dedicated her entire life to allowing the unconscious to work, you know, through her and her pupils. And she said, at was it at the end of her life or toward the end of her life that she did want her collected works to be published? She did. She did. That that was her, her desire with that. Um, and that was really the driving impotence of the the foundation and us to try to honor that as well. And Dr. Cruz, did you want to tell us your experience of, of how this came to be? I, I love the way Steve described the process because at various points it did feel as though, particularly when we traveled to to um, Zurich and met with um, the foundation's um, literary agent that they had that they had hired, um, it, it felt as though there was a vetting going on. Of of Steve and, and myself and also of Chiron, but it was a vetting like nothing I would have anticipated. It had much less to do with the hard numbers and the things that you would normally think of that would happen in the publishing domain. It it, it really was more of a sense of um, where we and and I, I say it because it I think put a, a heavy onus on on Steve and I to make sure that that we fulfill that that um, desire that the foundation had that this be done in an honorific manner. So um, so we're committed to staying alive for the next 10 years and pursuing this. <laughs> Indeed. I was just looking here for a quote by Dr. Kennedy about the first volume, and I can't find it now, about how it's not to be read, but it's to be studied. Right. I don't have the quote in front of me either, but um, you're exactly right. It's this is no easy bedtime reading. Yeah, it is a scholarly work that needs to be studied, pondered, absorbed yeah, into the unconscious. 
and it's it's very true. Yeah, when I was doing this work, yeah, if I just tried to skim through it like it was a yeah easy text to read, yeah, I would get lost and 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 couldn't move forward. But if you really dive into it and see it as this amazing scholarly work of von Franz and her early years pulling together the fairy tales, you know, then it really becomes uh, alive. I'd like to mention another book that both of you have published through Chiron. It is titled The Fountain of the Love of Wisdom, an homage to Marie-Louise von Franz. It was edited by Emmanuel Kennedy, and it is wonderful. I love it. It consists of death announcements. This is all on von Franz, death announcements, obituaries, internet responses, eulogies, birthday addresses, personal impressions, book reviews, publishers comments. There's a lot of biographical data, photos, uh, lists of her published works in English, and contributions from Jung's grandson, Dieter Baumann, from uh, Anne McGuire, Gilda France, Daryl Sharp, uh, Murray Stein. When did you publish that book? It was actually before us. It was Chiron, but we took Chiron over in 2013. You know, Murray Stein, Nathan Schwartzelant stepped down and asked us to, to take it up. So that was 2013. I think it was 2006 was the copyright publication date of Found of Love and Wisdom. So it was a number of years in before us. And oh, I had so that was before you. I'm sorry. Okay. I had almost forgotten about that that volume. I had you know seen it and and looked through it, you know, way, way back when we first took over Chiron. And then I was preparing that talk for ISAP. Mm-hmm. And I thought, gosh, I wish I had some good photos of on Franz and, and some good material. And then I thought, Steve, you're so stupid. The bookshelf behind you has you know a book with all that in it. So I turned around and found the book and Sure enough, it has this this treasure trove of yeah, delightful yeah. images and anecdotes, and and it really allowed me to to dive into von Franz in a different way, not just a biography of facts and data, but boy, you really get the spirit of von Franz in that in that book. I can't remember if it was Murray or maybe it was John Hill when we were in Zurich and that book came up, Steve. But mm-hmm. I, I recall somebody telling us that. You know, one of the challenges with that was they had to select from so so that very massive volume. I don't remember; it's probably six hundred pages plus. At least it might be more. Represents just those those contributions that they felt they they wanted to include, and there were apparently considerably more um, hmm. testaments and, and memorials that people had written. Yeah, it is almost 600 pages. And I do want to mention for the astrologers out there, uh, there are a lot of Jungian astrologers that are listeners of this podcast. There is a chapter on the horoscope of Marie-Louise von Franz uh, with her birth data and uh, her astrological chart. It is on page 339. I'm looking for it here. Uh, it was written by, this chapter was written by Therese Lotzker. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it also includes the birth chart of C.G. Jung, and then a combined chart of Von Franz and Jung, It is the Sinistry Horoscope. That's on page 341. I will provide a link to this book, The Fountain of the Love of Wisdom, in the show notes for this episode. Dr. Buser, 
you included a slide in the ISAP talk and it included what I was thinking was a sneak peek into some of the other volumes. Uh, you mm -hmm. both mentioned volume six on Nicholas von Flew, volume seven on Aurora Consurgens, and volume eight. Uh, now, volume eight, you listed as interpretation of fairy tales slash animus and anima. So will volume eight be on fairy tales as well? Yes, and in fact, you know, a quite a number of the other books will be on fairy tales. That was such a focus of her life's work, not the sole one, but a, a good chunk of it, that, you know, probably, maybe not quite a third, but a number of the, the books, you know, will be, the slash refers to two books combined with that one. Okay. Because these were already published in, in English. There'll be, again, a fresh translation, you know, for them. Um, but the interpretation of fairy tales, you know, was a book that von Franz, you know, wrote, then Animus and Anima in Fairy Tales was another book. So those two books retranslated will be combined into a, a single volume in volume eight, you know, for that. Okay. And on that slide, you also listed Alchemy, The Way of the Dream, Redemption in Fairy Tales, Puer Eternus, The Golden Ass, Divination and Synchronicity, and Time, Rhythm, and Repose. Mm-hmm. And you're right, those were just a sneak peek. Yeah, okay. I was, I didn't want to put up everything because when it's not, you know, fully set and, and, and we're still kind of working some things out, but I did want to throw out, you know, some excitement of, of there's some really neat volumes kind of coming up and they're all going to be neat, but, but there were just, you know, some that I wanted to whet people's appetites with mm -hmm. and, and let them know it would be coming in the not too distant future. So let's, let's use this one as an example of alchemy. Uh, there is a book that was published by Inner City Books uh, titled Alchemy and Introduction that was based on von Franz's lectures. And now will that volume in this collected works on alchemy be that book retranslated? I actually think that those lectures were delivered in English. So how will that work? Right. So... The, the published material that was initially in German is cleaner in that sense of it all just you know, come um, directly over with that. That's volume 18 currently, Alchemy, an Introduction to Symbolism and the Psychology. And, and you're right, that is already published. I'm fairly certain the foundation has acquired the various copyrights you know, for those, even for the ones that aren't being retranslated you know, with that. Um, okay. That said, we have the, the big picture, but we're not able to hone in yet because we haven't received the transcripts, you know, the manuscripts, you know, we don't have the full material yet. Okay. We didn't get the chance to fly out to Zurich as we were hoping, you know, this last year for obvious COVID reasons. Um, so to be honest, we're focusing on the first few volumes, um, but you're right. The ones that were originally in English, I would suspect won't be substantially altered, you know, the footnotes probably you know, will be in, in some of the scholarly indexing, um, but most likely the foundation will keep those more intact if their first language was English. But even that we have yet to see, we, we haven't received those manuscripts at all. And Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I thought also that there may occasionally be unpublished material that the foundation has rights to. 
mm-hmm. that um, might be incorporated into different volumes that um, on the surface might appear identical to previous published material, but um, mm-hmm. they may actually incorporate other unpublished material or lecture. Yeah, they, there is you know, a lot of material out there and the the foundation itself is in the home of Anne Franz. You know, before she died, you know, she deeded the, the home over to the foundation and they have a archive there that they've you know, pulled together a lot of work. So while we don't have specifics yet on, on that volume, you know, I wouldn't all be surprised if there's you know, new material that's added to that as well. So right now, the first volume is available in hardcover on Amazon and also on your website, chironpublications.com. And then there is a paperback edition coming out later in the spring. Is that right? Should be about six months, five to six months. You know, we're taking the more traditional publishing approach of releasing the hardcover initially and then, you know, paperback, partly because it's such a momentous, you know, collection. You know, we felt, you know, having the hardcover as the, the primary initially would sort of honor, you know, that, that piece a little bit more so. Oh, I love that. I love hardcover books. And especially with this, because it's a 28 volume set and we really, there's something about having a bookshelf that's devoted to a singular, you know, collected work series and having the hardcover, it's kind of lined up there and just having the corpus, you know, of, on Franz, you know, there. Um, it's different when it's paperback. I don't know why, but for me, the hardcover holds a little more mythos, logos, when it's you know right there you know, on the shelf. Yes, I agree. There was one thing I wanted to say, which was a, a quote from Fran Franz from volume one, which she gets at a number of times in different ways. And it's that she saw fairy tales as holding a core secret in each fairy tale. And she talks about it on two levels. One, sort of a global secret of all fairy tales contain a secret. And then she kind of lays it out in the the volume. And what she says in the global sense is fairy fairy tales give the hero or heroine a choice to engage and listen to the unconscious or to ignore it and go a different way. And universally, you know, when we listen to the unconscious and take in what it's trying to tell us, you know, our world becomes better. We may not be wealthy and, and famous, but we are more genuine and, and we, we have good fortune you know, in our lives. And to the degree that we miss that opportunity, we don't. And, and, and so that was part of the global nature of, of fairy tales. But then she also says that each individual fairy tale as his own core secret. And as she's going through these fairy tales, part of what you see her doing is setting the stage with background and, and time and Enchanted Kingdom and the archetypes, but then also trying to pull together what is the core secret that the unconscious is trying to bring forth in this fairy tale. And it's just a delight to, to see her you know, doing so. That's beautiful, the core secret that the unconscious is trying to bring forward. That's it. Well, would you like to end it there? Yeah, thank you so much for you know, guiding this so beautifully. This was a hard interview because it, it's so big. And even when I was putting my notes together of, gosh, what do I want to tell Laura? 
you know, there's so many veins you can go down and, and it's this gigantic 20 volume series and von Franz's life was so huge. Yeah. And this volume has 800 fairy tales, you know, how do you, Capsulate it, yeah. But but I think you did, yeah, really well. So I appreciate well, your. You did, your you did, and I appreciate that. Yeah. And hopefully, this will uh, whet people's appetite to uh, purchase the book. And so, with that, I will read the outro. If you'll just stay with me for a couple more minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay, please visit the website speaking of young that's j-u-n-g dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now on Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this podcast on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying Alexa, Play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to everyone at Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>